Brothers and sisters, good morning. I'd ask you to take your Bibles or devices and turn to Matthew chapter 26. If you didn't get an outline, if you could also raise your hand and know we will make sure you get one. This morning our text is Matthew 26, verses 26 through 35. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Please follow along as I read God's holy word. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a new hymn, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. May God bless the reading of his word. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp unto our feet. Your word is a light unto our path. Your word is a sharp two-edged sword that pierces us to our very core. And we pray, Lord, that this morning your word would illuminate us, would guide us and direct us, and if needed, that your word would pierce us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Go ahead and be seated for me. And if your chair is in the sun, please do not be shy about getting up or moving your chair or asking the people next to you to move in a little bit. There are a few chairs up in the front area that are still in the shade. Um, normally, I lean on my PowerPoint as a crutch so that we don't have to turn in our Bibles too much. It's not for your convenience. It's for mine. Because every time you turn, that's 30 seconds of my preaching time that I lose. So we'll be turning a lot in our Bibles or devices, and I will be pausing at those times so we can get there. Um, this passage is probably familiar to us. The passage before this was uh, that Pastor Brian taught on last week is, is famously titled uh, The Last Supper. So that's a passage, even if you're not a Christian, you're probably familiar with. This passage may not be as familiar to non-Christians, but should be exceptionally familiar to us as believers because we should be hearing this passage regularly. This is a passage that where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And, and hopefully, if you were here last week or watched online last week, hopefully you remember some of the things Pastor Brian taught us connecting the Passover and telling us important things about the Passover because we're going to see some of those things this morning and I do believe that'll help with our understanding of this passage. So if you have your, your, your notes in front of you and the notes, lots of uh, room to take notes this morning, uh, letter Roman numeral one, the institute.
institution of the Lord's Supper. So we see in verse 26, they were eating. This is at the end of their Passover celebration. Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he takes the cup, he gives thanks, and he gives it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So this is the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is communion. This is something, we, whether it's from this passage or from 1 Corinthians, we read these words often. Other Bible-believing churches read these words often. We want to see their connection this morning to the Passover. If, if you have your notes, you've got a couple of different points we want to look at. Please, now if you've got your um, music sheet, maybe you want to use that as a bookmark if you have a physical Bible in front of you if you're old-fashioned like me, but turn back in your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 12. Look at a few passages from Exodus 12. That's the second book of the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. Pastor Brian did a, a wonderful job last week showing us some of the um, symbols that were, we celebrate in the Passover meal. I'd encourage you to go back to that lesson for today. We're not going to focus on that. Today we're going to look at the similarities between the Lord's Supper and the Passover. We see in chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 5, you need to use a lamb without blemish. Exodus 12, 5 reads, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. A really important part of the Passover, when you're offering this sacrifice, you didn't take the lamb that was about to die. You didn't take the sickly sheep that's of no good to no one. It's a sacrifice. It's costing you something. So here we're seeing a very, very important part of the sacrificial system as you're offering this sacrifice in regards to the connection to the Passover. You are offering of your best. A young lamb, a young goat without blemish. It's as perfect as you can get. And you're doing that because of our second point that we're going to talk about today, it's a substitute for you. We look still in Exodus 12. Let's look at verses 12 through 13. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I'm the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When we're celebrating the Passover, there's the reminder, and Pastor Brian alluded to this a little bit last week. Judgment was needed. Death had to happen in every household as the angel of death went through Egypt. And at first, that might almost cause you to recoil. That's so mean. That's not fair. But let's remind ourselves, none of us are without fault. All of us are guilty of cosmic treason against the God of the universe. And we all deserve, rightfully deserve, the wrath of a holy God. And that includes God's covenant people Israel in the Old Testament. So there, there's the word, there's going 
going to be death in every single household. And God is not just holy and just by his grace. He's also merciful and, and gracious. So there's a, a way for the Israelites to avoid the death of the firstborn. And that way is by following God's plan and the Passover meal. And when the lamb dies, the lamb dies in place of the firstborn. The blood on the doorpost, that is the symbol as the, the angel of death comes through, that blood on, the blood on the doorpost represents the substitute died in place of the firstborn. So Passover. So in, in the Passover meal, as that was celebrated, the Israelites were to do this in remembrance, and every time they did it, there was that reminder there was a substitute in place of God's covenant people. And it also points to, and again, Pastor Brian did a wonderful job pointing to this last week, it, the, the Passover points to God's judgment and deliverance. Still in Exodus 12, let's scan down a little bit to verse 23. Verse 23 down to verse 27. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Look at the judgment there. There's the beautiful aspect of this. God's people were delivered. We're going to look at that in a minute. But there's also the reality, the holy God rightfully judged sinners. And every time they celebrated the Passover, there was the reminder, God is a holy God who must judge sin. The God of the Bible is not a pushover. Some parents are pushovers. And their kid is messing up and messing up and messing up. And the parent, ah, I know it's wrong, but gosh darn it, they're just so cute. Been there. Maybe there's some mercy there, but is it, is there justice? Maybe there's mercy there, but are you really serving the kid every single time you let them get away with these things? We have a God with holy, righteous standards. They're appropriate. They're good. They're consistent, and we should praise God for that. And it's not just that holy, righteous standard. By his grace, he's also that gracious God who provides the means for deliverance. And that's the great theme of Passover is deliverance. So as we scroll our eyes down a little bit more in Exodus 12, verses 31 and 32, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. That's obviously, that's the great theme of Exodus, of course, our, our word Exodus from the same core word exit, the way out. So the Exodus, the, the, the main story of Exodus is God's deliverance of his people from their Egyptian captivity. Deliverance is really the theme of the whole Old Testament. 
God's amazing deliverance of his covenant people. So as we celebrate the Passover, we are reminded, we look at those three points again, we are reminded that a lamb without blemish has to be offered because that is God's means of substitute. That lamb, by God's grace, dies in our place. That, that, that meets God's righteous justice and provides our means of deliverance. That's the wonderful theme of the Passover, and hopefully we're seeing the Lord's Supper takes that theme and magnifies it. Because now we go so much more beyond that. I want to be very careful about this. The Passover is beautiful. If you've celebrated that once, if you celebrate it every year, praise the Lord for it. There's something better. And that's not to diminish the Passover that shows the Passover fulfilled its purpose because it pointed forward to something better. And as we come to the Lord's table, when we celebrate communion, we're not looking back to the regular sacrifice of a lamb on our behalf. We look back to the once for all sacrifice of the lamb of God, Jesus Christ which was better. And again, the, the, the book of Hebrews helps us so much with this. Offering the, our sacrifices on the Day of Atonement as good and faithful Jews, there was a beauty in that, but I know I got to do it again next year. And I got to do it again the year after that. And my kids have to grow up doing the same thing. So there's a beauty in it, but there's an understanding it's incomplete. It's insufficient. It's God's means, so it's beautiful. But there's got to be something better. And Jesus Christ is that something better. When we celebrate communion, we remember God is a just God because if the cross points to anything, it points to justice. There are false religions that claim to believe in Jesus, but then in the same breath will say, but a loving God would never put his son on the cross. But the loving God put his love, son that he loved so much on the cross because of his love for his plan, because of his love for you and me, because of his love for justice, because he is a loving, holy God. And much, much better than the one-time deliverance of Israelites out of Egypt is our deliverance from sin. And that is a deliverance that happens every day. Every single time someone comes to Christ as their Lord and Savior, there's another picture of them being delivered. And as we celebrate the Lord's table, this is something that we are told to celebrate until Christ returns. Because the beauty of this is enjoyed until Christ returns. The picture is perfect until Christ returns. And R.C. Sproul says it so beautifully. The, the Passover was good. It pointed to a better meal, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is great. It points forward to a better meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we see in Revelation 19. So this is wonderful and there's something better. This has a temporary beauty on this earth, and there's something better in the new heavens and the new earth. So that we, and we need to see this connection. The, the, G, Pastor Brian said so beautifully last week, all of the timing, there was nothing accidental about how Jesus partook of this Passover. So all of this timing matters. The timing of going right from the Passover into the Lord's Supper, that timing matters. The Passover was beautiful. 
we have something new for us because of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And it's the Passover, or excuse me, it's the Lord's Supper. And, and, and the, the importance of it is such that, and not every church does it every week, and I'm, I'm cautious not to, to, to judge those churches, but if it's as important as the Bible is saying it is, how could you rob God's people and not do it every week? I don't know about you, but those six months we were doing COVID church, very incomplete in so many different ways. One of the main ways, we can't do communion. We can't do what God called us to do, partaking one with another in remembrance of him. So, so by God's grace, we do this. We want to see a couple of more things in, in the connection with the Passover and communion. The, the symbolism of blood. Maybe if you're new to Christianity, you're, you're thinking, man, Christians are morbid. Because they think about blood all the time. That's gross. Why do they sing about blood? Why do they talk about blood? Why do they pray the blood of somebody on me? What does that mean? And it's symbolic, and we want to be very careful. Other religions have taken the symbolism in the Lord's Supper and made it literal and made it into a horrible doctrine. So we want to see the symbolism where it is. But there is important symbolism. If you're in Exodus, turn one book over to the book of Leviticus with me. Leviticus 17, the book of Leviticus is a wonderful book helping us understand the importance of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, helping us see the importance of the symbolism of blood, reads, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Give it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So we keep reading through the scripture. Sometimes in the scripture, the word blood means blood. The context helps us with this. But a lot of times the, the word blood means life. When it's talking about shedding of blood, it's not talking about you got a cut and you're bleeding. The shed of blood is symbolic for your life was taken from you. Okay, so we, and the book of Hebrews helps us with the importance of blood in sacrifices. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin, or, or maybe your, your version says no forgiveness of sin. Okay, so, so the blood sacrifice in the Old Testament was 100% necessary for the sacrificial system to happen. And now I want to say, be very careful. As we read Leviticus, it's so gracious. It takes into account what if your family didn't even have enough money for a lamb? And there are ways you could go about that offering grain if you couldn't afford a lamb. So even the poorest of slaves who had no property to them could still find atonement. So, so God's ways are so gracious and so wonderful. But we see as a rule, by, a rule of thumb, the shedding of blood was needed to make atonement for our sins. And then we fast forward to the New Testament. And I wish I had room to write all the amazing verses in the New Testament speaking of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. But if you want to do a study this week and you look up the word blood in the New Testament, so many passages symbolically using the word blood, but talking about the blood Jesus Christ shed for us to make atonement for our souls. Let's look at just one passage in the New Testament. So clear on the other end of your Bibles in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. 
First Peter 1 Peter 1.18, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So look at, look at how Peter is using that symbolic Old Testament language to point to the atoning work, the saving work, the redeeming work of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who took away our sins. You got other passages in your notes. You got Acts chapter 20, verse 28, which speaks of the church being purchased by the blood of Christ. You got Romans 5, 9, which reads, we were justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and so many other passages. So when we as Christians, you know, maybe we want to be careful about if we're talking to a non-Christian who's not familiar with the Bible, maybe we don't want to use this symbolic language, but hopefully as Christians we embrace the symbolic language of blood and we recognize when we're talking about the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ saved us, renewed us, redeemed us, made us clean, it continues to sanctify us, it's what makes us the adopted children of God. And we remember that every week when we come to the Lord's table and we have that cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage, now your version may not include this word, but verse 28, I'm reading from New King James. New King James, New King James says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Not all translations have the word new before covenant here. Um, but the passage that we read every week from 1 Corinthians does say, in all the translations that I saw this week, says the new covenant of the blood of Christ. And, and this is a very, very important phrase if you are a good Jew of Jesus' day. Because if you're a good Jewish boy or a good Jewish girl from that day, when you hear the phrase new covenant, that should spark your attention because there's a passage in the Old Testament that points forward to the beautiful reality of the New Covenant. So please turn with me to Jeremiah. If you have a physical Bible, that's kind of in the middle of your Bible. So maybe you want to close your Bible and then open your Bible in the middle. The middle is probably about Isaiah or Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read about the New Covenant. Maybe you were married in a Christian context and, and you had a, a pastor and as he's doing leading you in the marriage, maybe he says, this is not a contract, this is a covenant. It's binding before God in a special way. And you nod your head and you go, yes, amen, hallelujah. So, so maybe then you, you hear, you're, we have this marriage covenant, praise the Lord. And then we also have our covenant with God, praise the Lord. Yes, they're both realities. God makes a covenant with his people that is true. My wife and I have a covenant relationship with one another that's true. But my covenant relationship with Hannah is very, very different than God's covenant relationship with us. Because my covenant relationship with Hannah, that's two equal parties coming together. God's covenant with me, that is not equal parties coming together. So when we are talking about God's covenant with his covenant people, you and me, it's beautiful, it's binding, but it is, there is a superior party in this covenant. And that superior party has every right to dictate the terms and to define the roles. Okay? So we look at the Old Testament, we, we see God's covenant with Noah. I'll never flood the earth again. And we see that every time there's a rainbow. We have God's covenant with Abraham. I'm going to make of you a great nation. 
We have God's covenant with David. There's going to be somebody from your line who's going to be a king and his reign will know no end. All sorts of beautiful, amazing covenants in the Old Testament. And there in the Old Testament, there's the promise of a new covenant. We read about that in Jeremiah 31. Let's read it to Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. If you are an Old Testament Jew, this should be one of the most exciting verses in the passage, in the whole Bible. If you are a New Testament believer, this should be one of the most exciting verses passages in all of scripture. This is the beauty of the new covenant. It's a prophecy. So when Jeremiah is writing that, he understands it's in the future. So there were many, many years of Israel's redemptive history where this was still future. We're not there yet, but the promise is there. Praise the Lord. We're not there yet, but the promise is there. Praise the Lord. We come to the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes the cup. This cup represents my blood shed bringing in the new covenant. And look at Jeremiah. There's at least four incredible promises of the new covenant. Number one, we see in verse 33, God will write the law on their hearts and minds. In the old covenant, where was the law written? On stones. In the old covenant, and praise the Lord for that. That was a wonderful thing, but the law is out there. In the new covenant, the law is not out there. The law is in here. Now, God's law is not just something we strive to keep. God's law is written in us in such a way we desire to honor and serve the Lord in obedience to his holy and righteous standards. We have a new power, a new desire, a new heart, and a new mind. This is the promise of the new covenant. The second promise, the beautiful covenant phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people. If that was all that was written in the Old Testament, that would be enough. Israel, here's what you need to know. From God, I will be your God, you will be my people. Wow. You have this amazing phrase. The next phrase, you, the, the, the preaching of the word leads to an expansion of God's kingdom so much that people from the least to the greatest are believers in Christ. Now, this is where we, we talk about the already and the not yet. If we were to go knocking door to door, not every person's door would say, I know the Lord. There'd be people that go, oh, I hate the Lord. There'd be people say, I don't know the Lord. So there's, there's still a missionary aspect of our lives. But as we look at the expansion of God's kingdom, as we look at the work of faithful missionaries throughout this world, all over this world, there are people that fall into this category of least and greatest. I can think of one least. God saved a wretch like me. 
I'm living proof of the new covenant. He's grabbed them from everybody. There's no Jewish blood in me. There's no noble blood in me. There's nothing worthy of praise in me. But God shed, God sent Christ to shed his blood on my behalf. Before the foundation of the world, God chose a wretch like me. This is the beauty of the new covenant. And that last phrase of the new covenant, full pardon of sins. And again, that was achieved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have in your notes uh, Hebrews chapter 8. If you read Hebrews chapter 8, it, it literally, the whole passage we just read, it quotes basically word for word, and it tells us how this was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ inaugurates the new covenant. And every week when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded we are in that new covenant. We are receiving daily the benefits of the new covenant. Pastor Brian assigned me a few more verses. We could stop there talking about the Lamb of God, but if we keep going, we're going to talk about some scattered sheep. We look in verse 31. If you go back to Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble. Let me stop right there. Matthew doesn't reveal this, but John's gospel account tells us Judas has left by this point. So when Jesus says all of you, he's not talking to 12 people, he's talking to 11 people. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. So we have Jesus walking with them after they partook of the Passover meal, after they partook of the very first communion and they're, and they're walking. And Jesus again gives them, he's talked about these things before, but it's real now because it's going to happen in a few hours. All of you are going to stumble. Your version might say something different than stumble. Lots of different translations have lots of different really good ways to translate it. Some say fall away. Some say be offended. All of those are very appropriate. I'm going to say the word in Greek. You've probably never heard this word, but you're going to know exactly what it means. The word in Greek, scandalizo. What word do we hear? Scandalize. All of you are going to be scandalized tonight because of what's going to happen to me, says Jesus. Remind us, let's remind ourselves of who we're talking about. He's talking about 11 elect people. He's talking about people that are going to, in a few hours, they're going to run and hide. For a few days, they're going to hope nobody finds them. But then we fast forward a few weeks, and they are going to be boldly proclaiming the name of Christ with everybody but one willing to die for the name of Jesus Christ as they proclaim the glories of his kingdom. But there's the reality right now. In just a few hours, you're all going to stumble. And this is in fulfillment of scripture, Jesus says. So let's go. This is in Zechariah. Now, if you're in Matthew, just turn back maybe 20 pages because we're in Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Zechariah is the next to last book of the Old Testament. We go back to Zechariah chapter 13 written roughly 400 years before 
the accounts of Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, verses 7, here's the prophecy Jesus is talking about. Awake, O shepherds, awake the sword against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire. With, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. What is that last past verse, <laughs> that last thing I said, what does that sound like? The promise of the new covenant. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. So what we're seeing, this prophecy points to the new covenant. How so in this prophecy, the shepherd is going to be struck. It's going to be struck in such a way, the sheep scatter. Now we'll see in this passage, in our Zechariah passage, the scattering of the sheep, it does two things. It reveals the nature of the sheep. According to this passage, two-thirds, if we're using that number, two-thirds of the followers of the shepherd reveal the true nature of their heart, and they scatter and they never come back. One-third scatter in scattering the language, they're put through the fire. No context, but I ask you, do you want to go through the fire? Your answer is going to be no. No, I don't. But when we see fire in scripture, fire is something God uses to burn up that which doesn't belong, but it's also used to purify that which does belong. When gold is put through the fire, that is not to punish the gold, that is to purify the gold. When you put the gold through the fire, the dross and the infirmities burn away, and that which you have left is more valuable and beautiful. This prophecy says the shepherd will be struck and some sheep will leave. Some of Jesus' followers will never come back because they were never really his followers. But some of Jesus' followers they're going to leave in that leaving God is going to purify them and make them better than they ever were before and they're going to come back as pure gold if that doesn't speak to Peter I don't know what does we're about to read Peter at his most Peter but he's going to go from big mouth arrogant Peter to humble servant of God Peter and that's because he's put through the refiner's fire when the shepherd's struck. And look at Matthew. If you're in Zechariah, go back to Matthew. Who strikes the shepherd? It says, I. This is not saying when Satan strikes the shepherd. This is saying when God the Father strikes his son. All week in preparation for this, I keep questioning, am I allowed to say that? Do I have any pl place to say God the Father, the Holy 
loving one struck his own son. But again, this is the love of God. The love of God that says, I will do the hard thing for the good of those I love. I will do what breaks my heart to bring those I love to me. This is God. This is the beauty and the majesty of the God that we worship. And then Peter, verse 33, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. In English, this is really arrogant. In Greek, it's even more arrogant. It, 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 it's like he, fe- he bought neon signs pointing to him as he's saying this. Jesus, maybe the other losers you have surrounding you will fall. Not this guy. Everybody else will stumble, but not me. I've got it in me. I love you too much. I will never fall away from you, Jesus. And it's worth mentioning, when Peter says this, he's not lying. He's very, very wrong. But he believes in his heart of hearts, I love Jesus too much to do this. Jesus is too important to me. I would never do what he just said. He believes that. And in a few hours, he's going to be proven wrong. And Jesus changes the conversation. He goes from talking to all of them to talking directly to Peter. Peter, now I'm talking to you. I say to you this night, before the rooster crows, you deny me three times. The crowing of the rooster being the, the, the clear end of night. This night, this day, before you see the sun, before the rooster crows, you, you think you'll stand for me, I'm telling you. This isn't going to be a one-time thing. Three different times, you're going to intentionally reject me, intentionally deny me. Peter takes it up a notch. Even if I had to die with you, I'll not deny you. That's not the end of the verse. And so said all the disciples. There wasn't someone who said, Peter, stop talking for a second. Jesus, what you said is really scary. Is there anything we can do to stop this? Jesus, we know you're the all-knowing one. We know you can't lie. We know you can't be wrong, but we're begging you. Can you fill us with some sort of wisdom and strength to not do what you just said? They reject any sort of wise, humble thought or response. They all go arrogant. And there's 10, 11 people with Peter saying, we're willing to die for you, Jesus. We'd never do that, Jesus. And again, in a few hours, they'll all be proven wrong. There's three alls in this passage. There's all in verse 31, where Jesus tells them all they will stumble. There's all in verse 35, where they all say they'll remain faithful. And there's all in verse 56, where it says they all fled and left him. And this is also in fulfillment of scripture. Isaiah 53, 3 says Jesus was despised and rejected by men. This is not just saying he was despised and rejected by those who hated him. He was also despised and rejected by those that loved him. This is part 
of the burden Jesus carries being our substitutionary sacrifice. Bearing that all of that weight of sin, all of the wrath of God with all of his friends rejecting him. So we, we as we're closing up, um, it's very, very important we don't just take the doctrine, but a passage like this, we have to apply it right. And when we're talking about communion, when we're talking about the Lord's Supper, something that we celebrate with each other every week, we, as the body of Christ, need to know what that looks like, need to know what that means. Because we can get into the routine of things where it just becomes that thing we do at the end of service. Pastor finally said amen. We're finally almost done. I can give my hug. I can get my cup. I can start packing my bag. Yeah, and we can do it as routine, losing all the important significance of it. And I, I went the worst possible scenario. We can want it to mean something and go at the end of it, go, okay. I prayed. The pastor said to prepare my heart. I thought I prepared my heart, but now it's 20 seconds afterwards and I feel the same. We, we can be all along the, the gamut of these feelings, of these emotions. Um, the Bible guides us in how we can prepare our hearts. Note takers, I'm going to say some things. If you want to write, you don't have to write these down. You have in your notes from the Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 174 and 175. These are not the only questions and answers talking about the Lord's Supper in Larger Catechisms. So you want to write this down from question 168 all the way to 175. An incredible section of really, really wise people helping us see what the scripture says about the Lord's Supper. There's also, here's another thing you want to write it down, Heidelberg Catechism. What's a Heidelberg? Heidelberg Catechism, questions 75 to 82, another incredible section of questions and answers based on the Lord's Supper, Heidelberg 75 to 82. And the other one is from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. That would be the confession of faith our church would say that we hold to. In the London Baptist Confession of Faith, all of chapter 30 is on the Lord's Supper. So if you want to dig into this, I'd encourage you to look at those things. Also worth mentioning in Sunday school in about three or four weeks, we're going to have a lesson on the Lord's Supper where we'll dig a little deeper and a little more specific. But let's look at, they should be in your notes, questions 174 and 175 from the larger catechism. What is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it. So the administration is going to happen in about five minutes. So what should we be doing? What should we be thinking? Here's the answer. It's required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, heedfully discern the Lord's body, and affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces, in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, 
earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love and giving thanks for his grace. In the name of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. That's a lot. Being fully honest, I do not do all those things every week when Pastor Brian asks me to prepare my heart before communion. But this is what the scripture calls us to. These are the things we are to have in our minds and in our hearts as we prepare for the elements. And then question 175, what a beautiful question. What's the duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Answer to question 175, the duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is seriously to consider how they have be behaved themselves then and what success. If they find quickening and comfort, to bless God for it and to beg the continuance of it, to watch against relapses, to fulfill their vows, and to encourage themselves to a frequent attendance on that ordinance. But if they find no present benefit, more exactly, to review preparation to and carriage at the sacrament, in both which, if they approve themselves to God in their own consciences, they are to wait for the fruit of it in due time. But if they see they failed in either, they are to be humbled and to attend upon it afterward with more care and diligence. So much there. Definitely more than we can get if we just read it one time and move on. This is something we got to look at, something we got to meditate upon. Pastor Brian and I, as the under-shepherds that God has put in this congregation right now, we have the very serious task of helping the body prepare for communion. that weighs heavily on me. I could speak for Pastor Brian, that weighs heavily on him. This is something I believe I need to come back to more often, not just for myself. I believe this is things I need to read more often before communion to remind us more and more. This is what we think about. This is how we prepare. This is who we are in Christ. And this is why these five minutes are so valuable to us as followers of Christ. I'm going to read the passage from 1 Corinthians. And then I'm going to give us time to prepare. We'll go right into communion after that. I'll, I'll, I'll pray for us together. Um, we're gonna, because of the, the setup today, we're going to pass the elements. Uh, so you can just be seated. And I just call on you to be, you know, if you need to read this, you can prepare your heart with your eyes open. If you need to be looking at this and praying over these truths before you, I'd highly recommend that. But let me read from 1 Corinthians. We read these words often. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, 
He also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Brothers and sisters, let's prepare our hearts. Father in heaven, you love us so much you give us a visible sign of your invisible grace. You give us the Lord's Supper, a frequent reminder of the incredible love of God the Father, of Jesus Christ the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're about to partake of the elements. As we eat the wafer, we are reminded of the body of Jesus Christ that was broken. Not because of anything that he did wrong, but because he in bodily form felt the wrath, felt the weight, felt the pain of sin. And he did so as our substitutionary sacrifice. As we drink the cup, we are reminded of the blood Jesus shed. As his blood was shed, the, the symbolism there points to that blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, washing away our sins in full. He paid the price we never could. He paid the debt we never could. He purchased our salvation on the cross. And when he said it is finished, he meant it. We are reminded of that every week when we partake of the elements. Father, I pray that each one of us would evaluate our hearts, would take great stock of the sins in our lives that are so easily besetting us, that we would put those sins to death, that we would remind ourselves we have the strength to say no to these sins because we are in the new covenant. You are our God and we are your people. We have the Holy Spirit within us to empower us for faithfulness. Give us joy as we partake. Give us strength as we partake and may we live this week in that joy and that strength as we do this in remembrance of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.